Hello, this is Duran Ornstein from bestsaxophonewebsiteever.com, bringing you what I hope to be the best saxophone podcast ever. Here's where I meet with super brilliant folks from the saxophone world who will be sharing their insights, tips, tricks, and whatnot with you to inspire you to improve your craft and have a great time doing it. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the podcast. And today we have a very, very special guest, Mr. Greg Banizak. And Greg is a rare breed of saxophonist. First off, let's start with his status as literally one of the most esteemed classical saxophonists walking the planet at this time. The New York Times refers to him as a saxophone tour de force. He's played in front of orchestras at some of the most prestigious concert halls throughout the world. Mr. Banizak has appeared as a concerto soloist and recitalist throughout the United States, Eastern and Western Europe, the Middle East, and Asia. He's presented master classes at Austria's Music Hochschule. Is that, am I saying it right? Yes, you are. Hochschule, yeah. The Cairo Conservatory, Oberlin Conservatory, and the Tanglewood Institute. In addition, Greg was the first saxophone concerto soloist to appear with orchestras in both the Middle East and Korea, including performances with the Cairo Symphony and the Taegu City Symphony. As impressive as all of this is, perhaps most impressive is Greg's rare ability to have achieved professional success as a jazz saxophonist as well. Entrusted to fill some of the biggest shoes in jazz history, Greg recently took on the role of Charlie Parker in a recreation of the seminal album Bird with Strings, the strings being the Cleveland Pops Orchestra. So this introduction here only scratches the surface of what Greg has accomplished. So for more information, you'll have to visit his website to get the full scoop, and you can find the URL for that site in the show notes at bestsaxophonewebsiteever.com. So without any further ado, here's Mr. Greg Banizak. Welcome to the show, Greg. Oh, well, welcome, and thank you so much for your kind invitation. It's really a pleasure to be part of the, uh, this podcast, and and I really compliment you and your efforts to, to broaden the horizons of, you know, not only young saxophonists, but young and old, uh, you know, everyone, and, and, and uh, it's, it's really important what you're doing. So uh, I think we all appreciate your efforts of, of trying to broaden everyone's horizons, and, and that's, that's uh, much appreciated. Oh, no, my pleasure, my pleasure. So I always like to start these interviews off by just learning a little bit about how you got started on the saxophone. Well, that, that's kind of uh, easy. You know, we all have our, our way, uh, and mine was pretty organic. You know, the standard system in America, there's, there's several different systems, be it, you know, uh, the French system. Uh, and my, mine was quite uh, organic because... Uh, my parents, my, my mother wanted me to play an instrument. I, I was basically 10 years of age, and I, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I couldn't see myself playing drums. I couldn't see myself playing trumpet. Uh, and one day, I basically heard, I didn't know what the instrument was. Uh, it happened to be a Billy Joe song that you could not get away from. It was just the way you are. Uh, and that song was played 50 times a day for 50 you know, months. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, the saxophonist at the time uh, who did the recording session was Phil Woods. Uh, and uh, so what, I, I didn't really know what the instrument was, but I, I'll never forget that day. It was like electricity went through my veins, and I said, whatever that instrument is, I want to do that. And, it, it, you know, as years went on, and I learned a few scales and a few things and how much I still don't know. 
you know, I found out it was one of the greatest saxophonists ever, Phil Woods, and and I I even learned about the recording session that he just went in, and and you know, I I know Billy Joel and and Richie Cannata, who was also his saxophonist, and and Phil walked in and and, and one did it in one take and left basically in the key of B and and played such an elegant and beautiful solo. It's just. Uh, it's just a, a role model of how to play uh, in a pop genre with with style, with the language of bebop and clarity and elegance. So uh, I've, I had the chance to thank him for that. So that's that's not most like uh, you know a lot of people that start off on an instrument. Um, you know they may choose a flute and not like it and go to a clarinet and try this. And so I didn't know the name of the instrument that I wanted to play, but I said that was it and it happened to be the saxophone. Yeah. And- you know, it's interesting that your initial inspiration was Phil Woods and, you know, kind of that, you know, pop me, even though the way he played wasn't really so much a pop style, but Phil Woods was your initial inspiration. But eventually, how did you find your way to become such an accomplished classical sax player? What, what sparked your interest in that style of music, in the classical style of music? Well, you know, uh, there's a, a player that he he's kind of like the the uh, d- degrees of Kevin Bacon, where everyone knows a saxophone player, and yet he's not the largest name. Is Dave Chavone from Buffalo, New York? Uh, Dave plays or played with Doc Severinsen, uh, you know, Chuck Mangione, um, Woody Herman, and I was uh, privileged to be a student of his at the age of ten. Uh, many years ago, and he just exposed me to to everything really, uh, and that there was no one style of saxophone playing. Basically, there was either good or bad. So we would go from uh, trying to, you know, transcribe. Um, not I wouldn't say Bird. I think the first thing we started with was uh, Lester Young or some early Dexter Gordon to uh, playing the, the Glasnov Concerto. So he was truly, and still is to this day, a, a great inspiration to myself and a lot of. Uh, younger saxophonist because uh, you know there were no labels on music at the time it was just good music so I didn't once again I, I, I had this rare opportunity to be uh, exposed to the instrument in, in uh, pedagogically and not like a, maybe uh, as most people have a very structured uh, you know or have uh, have styles labeled I just heard great music when I heard classical saxophone it was just a different voice on the instrument but it was always saxophone to me so, I, I mean, I've even played with Rick James before because he was from before he was famous from Buffalo. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I, I was able to sight read, so I would play in the horn section at 16 years of age. And, um, you know, so there's nothing uh, for me that I, I put, you know, uh, is, is um, like labeled as classical or jazz or, or anything like that. I just pursued uh, any, anything, any aspect that the saxophone can do, I was always interested in because it's a, an instrument that you can never get bored with. It, it, you know, uh, it's, it's just truly amazing that we're all, we're all blessed to be able to be uh, trying to play this great instrument. It's the best thing in the world. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's so funny because most saxophone players see jazz saxophone and classical saxophone as being so different. I mean, I don't have a lot of experience as a classical saxophonist, and it, it just seems like a complete other universe for me. But it seems like through your journey, you've come to see that it's all kind of one thing. I mean, what, what is the, how, how did that come to be for you to where they're... They're, they both just seem like music, and you don't think of them so separately. 
Well, uh, you know, there there's the uh, technical standpoint of 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 having to play what, what I consider jazz is being able to play standard repertoire in swing. Uh, you could have a bright tone, you could have a dark tone, you could sound like from Lee Konitz to Jackie McLean. Uh, and, and I'm uh, very straightforward with people because it's a hard road to toe and say you play both styles. So what I do, uh, especially in a masterclass setting, and I just try to be uh, very uh, professional, but just expose people just the way I was exposed to is you put a metronome on two and four like it's a hi-hat and you're able to play I Can't Get Started or Our Love Is Here to Stay or 26-2 or Giant Steps. And subsequently, when you're playing in the classical style, you have to truly have extreme dynamics that match the pizzicato of a string section, uh, meticulous intonation because the orchestras I play with, for example, tune from 440 to... Uh, I just toured with Berlin Opera Symphoniker, and they're at 444. So you have to have extreme di dynamics, uh, impeccable intonation. And uh, there's this misconception, personally, that I feel of, of there's a French school, an American school, a German school. To me, frankly, that, that's, that's academic. Uh, violinists and cellists and violists, you want, if there's only one saxophone playing with an orchestra as a soloist, you want to be able to blend and match their vibrato as they would play and, and emulate their sound as the, the best of your ability. So people say a French school is a faster vibrato. That's not necessarily true. I, I had the pleasure of studying with Vincent Abato, and his biggest teachers were copying or emulating uh, what he heard in the Metropolitan Opera vocalist. So mm. uh, once again, I have a very different approach to playing the instrument in the classical setting, and it obviously works for me. Um, Maybe not for others, but you know that's once again trying to be a true soloist and, and pursue your own goals and and what you hear the instrument to sound you know what what you hear coming out of the the bell of your your own saxophone. A lot of people try uh, to maybe sound like others, and that's very very important. Be, be it transcribing um, you know Bird and and Jackie and, and all these great Sonny Stitt, of course. Uh, and I also transcribe entire symphonies. I'll grab a Mahler five symphony. I'll, I'll transcribe the bassoon solos, the clarinet solos. <laughs> wow! So when I play with these uh, orchestras, I might not speak all the languages, uh, obviously, uh, but they could hear that. They could hear those influences, uh, just like you could hear within first of the first course of a blues if someone really knows what they're doing or not. So within classical musicians, they could tell the first phrase if this person really understands. Uh, you know, uh, what it truly means to say you're a classical musician. Um, I don't know if that helps or not. I, I, it may be a little vague, but I don't know if I addressed your question the best I could. No, well, I mean, I think it's, it's the big challenge that all of us musicians have is striking that balance between being, uh, you know, having the precision and uh, academic uh, knowledge to, you know, execute the music the way it's supposed to sound balanced with the artistic uh, aspect where you just kind of go with the music and forget about all that stuff. So I think that's kind of what you're describing here. To... Uh, yeah, that, that actually helps me. Well, one of my recent uh, former students who's, uh, you know, I, I have several, I mean, numerous successful students. I'm so proud of Mark Plotkin being one of your colleagues and a uh, female baritone saxophonist from L.A., uh, her name is Joe Ellis, was just featured on the front cover of the Saxophone Journal. And she was just speaking about 
uh, I, I didn't know. I, I just uh, I didn't know what was going to happen. I was so happy to come home to receive my mail and uh, uh, see her on the cover. And she was just speaking briefly about my uh, philosophical approach to that and, and how that assisted her. Because ultimately, you have to be your own person. Uh, you have to learn the rules of engagement on our instrument, be it classical or jazz or pop. Uh, and we also learn from our errors. I mean, I remember doing gigs in Hartford, Connecticut with, with some, like, people that were doing the whole uh, Rat Pack routine, basically, like male vocalists doing the Sinatra impersonations and things like that, and me trying to play bebop language over that, and me getting fired in five minutes. They were like, hey, kid, what are you doing? <laughs> you know, so uh, I think we learn more from our, our, our failures than our, our triumphs, and uh, that's important, too, because we, we have to fall on our face a little bit in order to really... Um, really grow and develop that's i mean that happened with charlie parker uh that that happens with everyone it'd be it great painters great architects you know uh, i'm sure frank frank lloyd wright's first uh uh home wasn't you know it probably looked like legos mm-hmm. <laughs> so getting a little bit more specific can you take us through an average practice session for greg banizak you mean my, my daily routine, so to speak? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, uh, it's changed over the years, but I, w- I would say in the past five years, because I've really, in, 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 especially within this global recession that we're all discussing right now, which is, is truly upon us, uh, I've been working more than ever, and I feel very, very blessed about that. I, I, I have bookings until 2015, uh, and a lot of corporate sponsors, be it the Hyundai Corporation, PNC Bank, uh, Lot Polish Airlines. So, I, I, frankly, I can't believe all these things are happening. So, so what I start with my routine is even before I practice is something that I learned when I was uh, interviewing Branford Marcellus uh, for the Sax Journal in my column uh, about a year or two ago. He talked about the importance, and he, he alluded to it briefly, but it really hit home for me about staying in shape as, as we grow older to, to maintain physical health um, in order to keep, uh, you know, your skills together, especially when you're dealing with this arduous schedule. So uh, us as we as saxophone players, we finally attain what we want, which is a successful career, and yet if your health is, uh, you know, weak or if you're in not strong physical shape, you do suffer, and then your your performance suffers, and and everything else does. So it's kind of like uh, um, you you really uh, more than ever. I'm I'm 45 years of age, and I'm probably healthier than I am than I was 25 years of age. I've always enjoyed boxing and running and things like this, but um, or, you know, I, so I basically start off my day like running four miles and. And, uh, you know, just, just basic maintenance of, of staying in good physical shape even before I touch my instrument. Um, and I remember when Branford talked about that, getting up at 5 a.m. And, and just doing, like, three hours of, of um, you know, exercise. I was like, wow, you know, hmm. you don't expect to hear that from, from a player. Uh, we always expect to, you know, hear that you, you pick up your instrument, you start doing some long tones, some scales, and then you, you hit a couple tunes or whatever the case may be. So... Uh, you know, that's what I've been doing, and I, and I feel great about it, and it, it helps me when I just c- come off the road of a tour like this, like three weeks, and, and just going from city to city. You know, you start, you get up at 7 a.m., uh, the orchestra tunes at 9 a.m., the baton goes down. 
you you have a small break, uh, then you have a concert. You know, you jump into a tuxedo concert till ten o'clock. Get to your hotel room if you don't have to uh, attend a social event. Try to get some sleep if you don't have jet lag, and do it. You know, I'm not talking about like one concert, but do it night after night in a different city. And you know, you really have to. It takes a toll on your body if you're not, uh, you know, in in physical shape and, and mentally prepared for that as well. Mm-hmm. Wow, I never really thought of that aspect of it. And uh, three hours every morning. Wow, I don't. <laughs> I can't. Well, say that's that. what Branford does. Yeah. I don't do that. I'll <laughs> probably hit a solid hour, hour and a half. And some days, I remember Miles uh, saying this. Uh, some days I feel lousy. <laughs> so uh, there's some days I could feel like I, I could run to, to New York City, and there's some days I, I can't make a block. So I think that's just how it is in, in relation to practicing. Some days we feel great, and things that we've been working on just fly out of our instrument, and some days we feel like, wow, we're in third grade again, and uh, you're, you're questioning fingerings and questioning uh, everything. You're questioning, should I even be doing this? And I think that's part of our DNA and our human nature, and, and that's how we all are. It's impossible to have uh, uh, always be 100%. You know, it's, it's just part of uh, what we have to accept. And a lot of people, I, I feel, also ha- struggle with that. You know, you have to, you, from um, uh, Vincent Abato, my, my classical teacher, who also taught uh, Mr. Woods when he was a student at Juilliard, would always used to say, uh, from the thorn comes the rose. So I guess one has to suffer a little bit to get that 10% of, of uh, cream rises to the top in our careers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know, you know, musicians obviously pay a lot of dues <laughs> to get to where they are, especially the professional ones. So interesting to hear about exercise being one of them, but it makes a lot of sense. So. Well, it's, it's, you know, it's a personal choice, uh, but I'm in it for the long haul, if that makes sense. Uh, and I mm-hmm. could see that. I, I'm, I, even when I was I would say my late teens and 20s, I was, I was very uh, in tune with what, exactly what I wanted to do. So I always uh, speak to my students or my fellow colleagues and musicians, where do you see, a, a great question for all of us is, where do you see yourself in the short term, where do you see yourself five years from now, and where do you see yourself ten years from now? And so that's where, at, at where I am in my career and in just dealing with some of the older musicians I know, they're not worried about sounding great or playing good. They're worried about, oh, my God, I have high cholesterol. You know, I don't want that for <laughs> myself. You know, yeah. I, so uh, I always try to learn from others, um, uh, and, I, and I'm uh, very fortunate to do so because there's, uh, if you just open your eyes and, and listen, there's a lot that everyone has to offer. Everyone has something positive to offer. And even if it's negative, you know what I tell people, if someone like says something negative, well, they're teaching you, you don't have to be that negative. I, I love every player and everyone. I have no problem with, with anyone. If, if someone says, I don't like that player, well, great. Then you don't sound like that player. You don't have to do what he does. You know, it's, you know, find your own voice and pursue that, what you want to do. Don't worry about other people. Just worry about the person in the mirror. Yeah, I love that philosophy. Um, totally agree with it. <laughs> so... No. So getting uh, a little bit specific as well, um, I was curious, uh, do you use a different embouchure for classical music than you do when you play jazz? You know, that, that's a good question. Uh, I would say, you know, it's the same basic uh, fundamentals of a, 
a good embouchure that 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 wheel you know the 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 what Larry Teal would uh, speak about in the art of saxophone playing the embouchure wheel. Um, I don't, you know, everyone gets into these generic terms, which could be a misconception of like, well, my jazz embouchure is looser. Uh, I don't think my embouchure for jazz is any is looser compared to classical. I would say uh, the best adjective for uh, a cl- my my personal jazz embouchure, it's a little more mobile compa- compared to my classical embouchure, where just uh, I might not. It's it's just as flexible, but I'm thinking more of of. Uh, I'm, I'm completely thinking of a, a different sound, and, and frankly, uh, when I'm playing the, the two uh, different styles, the, the, the instrument, now this is uh, maybe hard to put into context, but the instrument feels like a different instrument. So if I'm playing a, a gig with, I have the, the good fortune of playing with the trombonist, uh, Chris Anderson, who plays with Count Basie and Slide Hampton's uh, trombone group here in Cleveland, you know, I don't, I don't feel like I'm playing... Um, you know, I feel like I'm a different player. If I'm playing with an orchestra, I feel like it's just a, a, a violin that's, you know, angled in a different position. So um, I don't know if that answers your question or not, but it's the, the embouchure still is is one of the, you know, it has all the, the, the basic fundament, fundamentals of a quality embouchure with maybe a little more mobility with within the jazz spectrum, uh, and a little more flexibility uh, for for maybe intonation purpose. Maybe I want in the high register to be a little. I don't want to say the term sharp, but maybe a little edgy. Where in class in the classical idiom, maybe I want to sound as sweet as that first violinist coming in on a, a concert high E, and I better blend with that person, or I'll lose my job because they'll just give me a look, and you know, a, a look is a thousand words, so to speak. <laughs> And when it comes to the intonation aspect you're talking about, do you use your lip to change? Because I hear a little bit about using the oral cavity and even the tongue to change pitch, or do you, mm-hmm. do you just use your, your lip for that? Well, you know, I, I probably do a little bit of both, and, and having come uh, or been born and raised in western New York, uh, you know, uh, I really uh, embraced uh, what uh, Monsieur Rasher had as far as his overtone series. I, I still play on a Rasher mouthpiece for, for like exercise purposes because if you could sound good on a, a Sigurd Rasher mouthpiece, you could sound good on, on anything, and, and I mean that in a positive light. So I, I do a combination of a lot of overtone work, uh, you know, the harmonic series, uh, even even an exercise, for example, regardless of what genre, if you're playing, you know, Donna Lee or if you're playing the Ibert uh, Concertino de Camera, uh, try to play without the octave key and see what that does to your embouchure. You know, mm-hmm. see, see what that does. It's almost like running with weights on. So getting back to that health issue again, you know, it starts to tie in as, as, as I get older. I start to see that, you know, it all kind of comes full circle. I never thought about those things years ago. I just played what was in front of me and pretty much tried to, uh, you know, get the right notes. And if it was jazz, tried to swing. And if it was uh, pop, tried to sound in that, you know, in that style. And if it was uh, classical, certainly try to play in tune and, and try uh, not to fight the instrument, which is, you know, a stuffy low register. Uh, the, it, the saxophone, by by far, is the greatest instrument in the world. But it poses a lot of problems. You know, how do we play a, a low D or, or low B 
uh, with uh, at Pianissimo, a piece by William Walton, uh, his uh, piece entitled Facade, uh, has the saxophonist, uh, the alto part, you, you have to sustain a low B for a long period of time at, at uh, Pianissimo, if not more or if not less. Uh, uh, Mio's creation du monde, you have to play, uh, you, you see it within the part three P's, so that, that A sharp or B flat or concert B flat as you wish, that has to come in like an angel, and, and that, that, that ends the piece, and if it comes in uh, any, any, any way else, uh, you know, it just <laughs> destroys everything, so, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a cross-country, uh, race so to speak you're you're always working on uh things that that uh we all have strengths and weaknesses and are playing i call it kryptonite you know i'm a, <laughs> a proud child of the 60s so i used to i still have all those superhero uh cartoons and things like that and and so we all have strengths and weaknesses and yet a lot of people don't like to speak of their uh, weaknesses and, and that's what really makes us stronger players whatever you find in your playing uh, that you want to work on, so to speak, be it articulation, well, address that every day. Be it intonation, address that. Be it finger speed, well, you know, today we're a product of what you're doing, the great work you're doing with, with uh, you know, your website. Uh, we're a product of the YouTube generation. You can see Charlie Parker, you know, uh, you know, play a constellation, so to speak, and you can barely see his fingers move or hothouse with Dizzy. Uh, so there, there's, or when you watch Train, when you watch Coltrane play, uh, you know, he's almost in a state of, he is in a state of grace and he's not flailing around and throwing his horn up in the air and doing this, these acrobatics and all these things that people get into. But if that's what they want to do, that's their choice. So once again, being positive, you know, if that, if you want to use your, your, your instrument like a baton or, you know, uh, uh, a toy that's that's your choice there's an audience for that i guess <laughs> yeah especially in the rock world the, the rock and pop sax world it's well good. yeah it, it can be you you can you know I, I remember the the tenor solo on donna summer she works hard for her money at the end that saxophonist uh, his name eludes me, but lets the audience know that he knows bebop and knows jazz very well, just from that last phrase he throws in at the end. So there's those good players out there that uh, Grover Washington Jr., for example, I mean, his uh, claim to fame was just the two of us, and yet, you know, he was in the uh, military ensembles, and one of his great albums was was with Dexter Gordon, and, and he could hang with anyone. He was a, I mean, he grew up in my neighborhood in the Lower East Side of Buffalo, so, I mean, he was playing... Uh, all the standards I would I would play uh, with him at the, uh, the it was called the it still is the the Black Musicians Club on the Lower East Side of Buffalo and you know he wasn't playing uh, pop tunes he was playing you know uh, just friends and uh, impressions and everything else and you you had to stand up there and play and, and or or try to hang sometimes it you 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 it worked out sometimes it didn't. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, there's a lot. That's the cool thing about the sax. There's so many things you can do, and there's, you know, people like that, and Michael Brecker, and, uh, you know, Kirk Wallam, who can play pop and, and burn, obviously, burn through jazz. So. Oh, yeah, and, and a great guy and a great player. I've never met him. I mean, I've never shook his hand, but, you know, also your reputation precedes you. You know, you, you don't want to be a. Uh, Michael Brecker was a wonderful. So it looks like we got cut off, but Greg, you were talking about uh, Michael Brecker and 
uh, him being a great guy? Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and uh, these things happen with technology. Actually, we're, we're experiencing this, this hurricane that, unfortunately, is probably going to devastate the whole eastern, you know, seaboard in, in New York City, which hasn't happened in uh, over a century, I guess. But anyway, uh, yeah, I mean, aside from, you know, being one of the greatest, I mean, uh, you know, not even jazz, just a true virtuoso, that term is used uh, a little too much. Uh, he was a great guy. You know, there's, uh, it's really important uh, that, you know, when you put your saxophone away or whatever instrument you play, that you, uh, I believe that, you know, you, you're just humble and, and uh, appreciate your audience and, and your the patrons of the whatever concert uh, and things like that and and and, and try, definitely try to help out younger players. You know, if someone wants to come in and sit in with me uh, on a, on a club date, for example, I'm not going to call a tune they don't know. I'll say, what well, what what makes you feel comfortable? I might say to them, what's your favorite tune? And and you know, take it, let them try to enjoy the experience. Um, it's hard enough when you're 16, 17, 18 to get up there in a club and try to play in front of a couple hundred people. So uh, why call something that they they're not going to? They don't have to. They don't have to be have an experience to know that they don't know uh, April and Paris at uh, quarter note to 300 to say, okay, I got to go home and learn that. <laughs> so. Yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna keep getting a little bit geeky with you and just ask you some sax another saxophone question that I oh, been sure. wondering about, um, which is with the overtones. You know, they they say a lot of the time you when you practice your overtones, you want your the overtone version of a note to sound as big and full as the regular fingering of the note. And I'm wondering, is that ever possible because as your tone gets bigger your overtones will get proportionally bigger as well and you'll, you'll never really be able to match the sound of your overtone is, is that no yeah I, I think so i mean you know we can it, it's a work in progress uh, i think is a good uh, way to to uh, to approach it is it's it's never a hundred percent it's it's a constant work in progress that and then uh, that ultimately b makes you a better saxophonist and makes you understand, you know, your laryngeal and pharyngeal muscles, your your own personal embouchure. Dave Liebman has a great book out on developing your personal saxophone sound that is so articulate and wonderful for for any saxophonist out there that really really lays it all out. And and it's it's a, it's a solid read, meaning that. You know, it's not something that's very esoteric that says you have to go on a mountain and close your eyes for six days and fast. And, you know, so, uh, yeah, you want those notes to get as close as possible, but, but, but they're not going to. So it, it's, it's kind of the, the effort that it takes allows one to try to understand what's happening internally instead of just simply putting on the reed on the mouthpiece. Hopefully, hopefully it's straight and blow into the saxophone. So... I think it allows the saxophonist to, to get to know one's embouchure and, and really develop their own sound um, and, and find out what, what makes them tick tonally in, in their own personal, true personal sound. Uh-huh. And, and, you know, speaking of uh, overtones, uh, one of the things overtones help people with a lot is the altissimo. And in listening to some of your music, I it sounds like you were going up into the Altissimo register uh, in some of your classical pieces. Oh yeah, and uh, you know what? 
you know, it's essential now nowadays. I mean, it was essential maybe 20, 30 years ago, but how composers are writing, uh, 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 saxophone is composer, uh, great player. Russ Peterson wrote uh, a piece I did. Uh, it's for flute, uh, alto saxophone, and orchestra. And he has me going up to in 16th notes at like, uh, I don't know, 132 to the quarter note to, to uh, a D above side D, you know, the fourth octave D. <laughs> And and so it's not just even popping the note out. It's like and uh, the you know the the players that I see now currently, where my generation they found that to be you know uh, very difficult and arduous and um, that you know to them you know it's it's no big deal. Uh, but when we're going up there, it is a question of relaxing and control. There's a lot of players that can look up a fingering chart and find those notes. But my, my biggest question to uh, saxophonists when they ask me about this or, or students or is how comfortable are you when you're up there in that register? Because you can't, the audience can't, you, you don't want it to look like you're straining or stressing to do that, you know. And uh, you mentioned Michael Brecker's name briefly. When, when uh, Michael went up there, it was just another day for him. And he, he you know, he went up into the stratosphere. Uh, Lenny Pickett's another example, although uh, maybe Popper you know, rhythm and blues and genre, you know, Lenny goes into notes that, I, I mean, I don't even know where they are. They're so <laughs> high. He does it so well, man. He, he's such a great, great guy and great player. Yeah, definitely. So, and, you know, speaking of technique, because, well, it's kind of speaking of technique, because you need a lot of technique to run around up in that register. But speaking of technique in a general sense, what are some of the things you've done to improve your technique? Well, um, I'm a firm believer, uh, you know, there's so much that we can maximize with the use of a metronome, and that might be the standard uh, answer that a lot of people respond to. And, um, but for me, uh, a metronome and a tuner will not lie to you. So uh, using, using a metronome, uh, another thing that is, is paramount in developing your technique is is watching other players. I, I, I mentioned briefly watching uh, Bird and Coltrane. You know, their fingers never moved off the keys, and nor did their bodies. They were very stoic in their positions uh, physically, and yet they were playing a mile a minute. And these are our, you know, the, the forefathers of our instrument. These, these are, you know, um, the, the, our, our musical heroes, so to speak, uh, on saxophone, regardless of jazz or classical or pop or anything. Uh, so for me is is uh, uh, the best analogy I could do in an interview such as this is when you're playing very fast it should feel like you're playing very slow so that just takes time uh, you can see in one's physical body presence when 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 they start to get a little when when tempos start to get the better of them because their shoulders raise there's just tension in their face and uh, when you're when you're playing you know uh, the repertoire of, of Charlie Parker or some uh, upbeat tunes, you know, you just have to feel like you're just riding on, a, you know, a, a real fast, the, the Tejave in Paris, you know, a train that's going <laughs> 270 miles an hour. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of thinking about it. Uh, yeah, it can be tough, especially on, especially on tenor. Um, I find it difficult to keep the finger movement at a minimum. So... Yeah, it's good to watch those guys. Yeah, and it's good to watch yourself. You know, really look at your hands, and and that's where one thing that the I guess a nice piece of advice I could pass on is that 
Uh, I personally feel one should always feel the pearls on the saxophone regardless of where you are. So uh, I really believe in just like uh, uh, that, that type of hand position. And I learned that from both classical and jazz players and, and not just uh, saxophonists, watching a violinist uh, play in, in their position. And, and saxophone is such a natural instrument that Adolf Sax created for us. I mean, when you watch a violinist with their, their left arm curved and their bowling <laughs> and, uh, and all this insanity, I'm like, how they, they deserve to get paid more than us. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So um, going into a, the bigger musical picture, uh, can you talk a little bit about your process for learning a new piece, you know, classically, um, a new piece of music? What's your process from the time you get it to the time, you know, you're ready to perform it on stage? Well, some, you know, it, 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 that's a great question. And um, it really depends because, you know, uh, I have a love-hate relationship with living composers because they're always trying to change things at the last minute. And so uh, on this upcoming CD, I'm doing a work by Arthur Honegger that he originally wrote for us, a duo concerto for flute, English horn, and string orchestra. And Jean-Marie Landex did an arrangement published by Salabert for alto saxophone substituting for English horn. Um, and I think what, what I'm getting at is that we all need time to really digest something. So my whole philosophy is, is I'm not going to try to overeat any, any piece of uh, music, be it a, a new jazz composition or a new classical composition. If it's even, a, uh, you know, I'm going to deal with the first four chord changes if I'm playing this tune. And I want to really sink my teeth into that progression. I'll go to the piano and play it. Uh, if it's a classical piece that's not too fast, I, can, I could get around the piano a little bit. And, and I'll try to hear what's happening in the harmonic structure. So I won't just like rip open the music and jump on it. I'll, I'll take, to me right now, less is more. I'll take one phrase and play it 20 different ways. And I'll think about, you know, if it's an, an orchestral piece, how would it, do I want it to sound like a cello? Do I want it to sound like a viola, an oboe, a bassoon? Uh, in the jazz spectrum, you know, who is this person's influences? Is this person, you know, just by their compositional uh, style, are they influenced by uh, like Miles, so to speak, or Gil Evans, or, uh, you know, where are they coming from? So I just don't, once again, play notes. I want to really sink my teeth into it. So when I play it, it's, it's more than just a, a gig or, you know, just sight reading something or, you know, going beyond the, the technical aspects of it. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah, as a, you know, for most jazz players, Jazz music is all about improvising and being fairly loose with the melody, the rhythm, the harmony, whereas classical music seems to revolve around, you know, you're playing through composed sheet music. So what are some of the musical liberties that you're able to take within the context of a classical piece? Well, I, I think that comes into your one's own experience when uh, we were discussing earlier, like, uh, I don't know of too many saxophones that transcribe uh, large orchestral works, like I said, Mahler or Tchaikovsky uh, for, you know, symphony and things like that. Like, I know the piccolo solo in that, that, that <laughs> large piece of music because I spend the time to do that. Uh, so... Uh, most players probably don't do that, so I try to, like, uh, there's a lot of jazz players that transcribe a hundred solos, uh, and yet uh, a lot of classical players just play the written page. So do, in doing so, that gives me that flexibility just to go beyond the notes. So what I, I then incorporate is 
the use of maybe dynamics that may be not there. It might say a forte or it might say piano, but between that to me is zero to 60 miles an hour. Uh, different colors, you know, I, I think in the color spectrums, like uh, even does this a bright blue, a bright, bright green, is this dark, is this, you know, uh, the colors of the, the French Impressionistic painters. I always uh, think about that. The, the, some of the greatest painters, they created their own colors. So I'm always like trying to use other resources to to make my sound uh, the best of what the composer may want, uh, and and that that falls into to any style. You know, if it's a, a tune that's funky, I really want it to be funky. I want people grooving, and and, and you know, I want to I want to force them to dance. So it doesn't have to be, you know, so uh, uh, you know. Uh, if someone's playing, like uh, the Glazunov Concerto is probably the most well-known classical concerto for, for saxophone and orchestra. That still swings to me. That still feels good, you know. It has its depressing moments here and there. It has its passion moments. It, it has everything. But the, the term swing to me uh, is, in a, in a bigger sense, it's, uh, music that just feels good, that touches one's heart and soul, and is really why we're, we're doing it in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so would you say, or I'm curious to get your take on, what are some of the skills required to be a great classical saxophonist that your average jazz musician might not think of? That's a great, another great question. Uh, is working, uh, you know, w working with your, your uh, dynamics a little bit more, really understanding that... Uh, uh, to play within that realm, that's why so many uh, classical musicians, orchestral musicians, I should say, frown upon the saxophone because when they're playing at their pianissimo, a saxophone is playing at forte, or they're swinging their 16th notes in bolero or something like that. Um, so um, it all comes down to listening, you know, if, and, and doing it steady. You know, it's not going to happen overnight. Uh, I, I made this choice a long time ago because I didn't hear, I didn't put any labels on the saxophone, uh, on on music. I didn't put any labels. I heard the the Weber clarinet concerto, and I was, you know, I was turned on. I was like, how would that sound on the saxophone? Um, so if that's what one wants to pursue, uh, you know. You, you just have to take those those steps that, you know, what are the, I studied, I had the pleasure of studying at, at the Paris Conservatory with Daniel Defier, so what are the best French classical saxophone players doing at, you know, what, what, are, what are the parameters that they have to work on? And then, you know, being a, a student of Jackie McLean, what, what did he did, uh, do? You know, there was never a music stand in, in our lessons. It was all, you know, I, re, I remember playing side-by-side -side tunes like Big, or, uh, you know, a lot of bird repertoire and, um, you know, never his tunes, he, you know, although he wrote the, <laughs> that it was, it was never, a, I would try to play or, or, or quote some of his stuff. He was like, man, don't do that. Try to quote Buster Smith who taught Charlie Parker. I was like, okay, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But uh, I, I don't know if that helps or not. You know, I'm just trying to, uh, I guess, especially in an interview of this nature, the, the big picture is if, if a player wants to try to do both, it, it's a, it's a, it's it's truly a cross country journey that it's not going to happen overnight. You have to take, you have to be happy with the process, and and, and and don't try to compare yourself with other players. That that just just 
do one thing, you know, that's their choice. So mm -hmm. if you want to be the greatest classical saxophonist in the world at, at your age or whatever country you're from, do it. That's great. If you want to be the, you know, uh, the next Michael Brecker or Lenny Pickett or, or, or all the other saxophone players we were discussing today, then do that as well, you know, and follow their path. You know, I use the term like blueprinting. What did they do to get there? You know, what was... Uh, you know what was their role and what was their you know their role models of of uh, musicians at the time mm -hmm. so i mean there's there's never a day that goes by where i don't here here's i guess something that that's uh, that might open up the door of your question is there's never a day that goes by that i don't learn something new on my instrument that i didn't know the day before and that could be classical jazz pop anything i'll i'll just uh, you know i'll just I'll drop the needle on whatever, or, you know, I'll just find something on now YouTube and, and just try to figure it out, you know, and try to figure it out very quickly. That That's what I'll do. So I, I sound like a member of that band or that group. I won't, I don't want to waste, waste five minutes. So if it's uh, whatever style it is, you know, uh, I'm representing that style with, with integrity and, and I don't sound like the odd man out. Yeah, sounds like a lot of fun, actually. <laughs> oh, it's fun. Yeah, yeah. The minute is, I mean, it, of course it's a lot of work, you know, and, and I'm not being, you know, I'm a very honest, straightforward person. All the people that know me uh, know that in the first five minutes of meeting me, and it has to be fun. I know I, we, if you look at it like an uphill, it's hard enough for all of us to play and do what we're doing. We're all in it together, and, um, you know, it has to be fun because, you know, the people that have big ears, so to speak, if they don't hear that you're having fun, they don't want to play with you. And certainly an audience does not want uh, to hear you. <laughs> you know, that, that's the, the thing that I've learned a lot in playing in countries that I don't speak uh, the language. I was, I was supposed to go to Syria on tour uh, this summer, but of course what's happening there was postponed uh, with the State Department. And... You know, I, I'm, I'm, I speak a little Arabic, uh, certainly maybe to order a meal and, or get around, but, uh, you know, when you play in other countries, if they don't sense that you want to be there and be on stage and believe in your music, that, that, you'll, you'll tell by the, the applause, you know, you'll, you'll tell by, by uh, I don't care if it's a jazz venue or a classical venue, whatever it is, uh, my, my, what I try to pride myself on is an invitation back, not maybe next year, but the following year, and someone to say, hey, can you come back and play with us? That was an enjoyable experience. So that, that's really important to me, and I, that's part of the big reason of why I work so much, is uh, it's not about a lot of CDs or the people I had the good fortune of studying with. It's about you know, really trying to understand what's coming out of my bell, what I'm trying to say, and my audience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... As far as uh, projects you're working on, what are some of the exciting things you're working on now and maybe some things that are coming down the pike that, that we should watch for? Well, what I think we're going to uh, leave your listeners with is what I just recorded and, and what's so great about it, I did it the way Bird did it, is uh, I'm doing an album that's coming out, um, uh, Bird with Strings Revisited, and there was, we, we, just, we just laid down all the tracks and to hear with that clarity and quality, quality, like having every other stand mic, you know, within the orchestra, uh, great rhythm section. I, I happen to use uh, uh, one of um, Les Silver's uh, mouthpieces from uh, R.S. Berkeley, his Legend series, the, the, the White Bird mouthpiece. It, it helped me play the gig, you know, and I've been doing this for 20 years. 
Uh, I really felt great about it. So this CD is, we're just wrapping it up. We're, we're thinking about cover art right now, like mm. what, what best represents cover art. And I'm looking at photos and, and artwork of, of Paris because that's when Bird felt his best. You know, if, uh, historically, he was practicing diligently. Uh, he was carrying Stravinsky's pocket score of Right of Spring in his breast pocket. Um, and um, so that's coming out soon. And I have another CD of a, a duo concerto CD. So it's uh, flute, which is, happens to be my wife. Her name is Catherine Dijon. Uh, flute, alto saxophone, and orchestra. And it has some percussion in it. And uh, that's really great. And that'll be out in the fall on the Centaur Records label. So there's a lot of things happening really fast. Um, it's, it's really... Um, you know, it's been a great year, so to speak. Uh, we, we, some years are better than others, but I would say the past five years have been a pretty much of a whirlwind, and, 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 and it keeps on going. So uh, one, one good concert always leads to ten others, uh, I've found. Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's what's coming out, is, uh, you know, a Bird with Strings tribute album, um, this duo concerto CD album on Centaur Records, and then uh, what's slated for the spring is a tribute to the unknown alto masters, which is uh, people like Sonny uh, Chris, Frank Strozier, um, a lot of a lot of people that uh, Buster Smith, for example, who is Bird's uh, mentor. Uh, you know, a lot of people that uh, the average saxophonist may not know that is, are, are really great historically important saxophonists that that people need to hear. So. I'm, I'm working on that project as well, so uh, it keeps it certainly keeps me busy. But I'm 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 a really a, a quite blessed and happy person to be doing all this. Uh, it, it it keeps me uh, keeps me on my toes, so to speak. Awesome, yeah. Um, I'm inspired just listening to you, so it's it's exciting. I'm excited to hear all this great music. So, you know, all great things come to an end at some point, and our interview at I guess we're just about out of time, but uh, yeah, again, I just really want to thank you. Uh, you've been such a great person to talk to and be inspired by, so um, yeah, really thrilled to have you on here. So we're going to be leaving everyone, like you said, with a tune off the Bird With Strings uh, CD, and uh, which tune did you want to do for that? You know, uh, I think that we're, we're going to go with the title track of, uh, I, I'm not sure, it's uh, East of the Sun or I Remember April, but it's still, like I said, I just got home about six, seven days ago, so um, whatever it is, I'll tell you, it sounds really good, and it's not about me sounding good, it's really about the people behind me. Uh, you know, the, 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 when, when you have great players surrounding you, uh, by, like the conductor's name is Peter Borkowski and this is Gorzów Symphony which is G-O-R-Z-O-W in Poland uh, you know you may not think of jazz in Poland but this is a, a world class conductor in a world class orchestra and boy it, it's just it, it was wonderful to play with them so whatever we end with I'm sure your listeners will really enjoy because you could actually hear the parts with such clarity and I know Bird would be happy and that's very important to me awesome Awesome. So, okay, well, unfortunately, that's it. Um, Or fortunately, because it was a great time talking to you. And uh, again, I thank you for being here today. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for all your efforts for what you're doing in the saxophone world. It's it's really admirable. And uh, 
you know, uh, keep it up because uh, a lot of people, you know, you're the next generation of what's going to be happening in the industry. So, you know, thank you for all your efforts in, in bringing all these great things to a, a bigger audience. So it's, it's very appreciative and, you know, very important. Absolutely, absolutely. So with that, we leave you with Charlie Parker and Strings as interpreted by the great Ban Greg Banizak. So uh, thank you guys and have a great one, Greg. Great. Thank you so much. Okay.